Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is Professor Kimberly Whaley. Professor Whaley teaches constitutional law at the University of Baltimore. She is also author of the book, How to Read the Constitution and Why. This is a great read because it actually has the complete text of the Constitution inside the book. Professor Whaley has also acted as legal expert for CBS News and has lectured on C-SPAN. On top of all of this, Professor Whaley is a mom and former lacrosse player. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't say I'm a lacrosse player, but I did play lacrosse in high school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if that counts. It does count. And oh, it seems like such a cool sport. I've never played, but uh, looks fun. Yes. Well, these days, any reason to get outside, I think we all feel in the midst of uh, how many months into this pandemic, uh, physical exercise is a joy, right? Oh, yeah. Getting some sun for sure. Um, and you were in private practice before becoming a constitutional law professor. Is that right? Yeah, but I actually still am in private practice. I mean, I still do um, consulting on uh, legal issues as well as teaching, as well as writing and all my uh, media stuff. So I have my hand in many things. You know, that's a great balance. And speaking of balance, um, I think you have a great all-American perspective in doing the research on you. You've lived in quite a few states. Um, You've lived in New York, Michigan, Washington, D.C., Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yes, that I think that's right. Wow, <laughs> you do do your research. I have never, I've actually never heard that list in my own life. So I appreciate uh, having it all laid out like that for me. No, I, I think that's important. You know, I went to law school and lived in Indiana for four years, and it's a different world than out here in California. So it's good to get uh, different perspectives in life. Yeah, actually, I think the year that I lived in Oklahoma, which was my first year of teaching, uh, I had a, a pretty eye-opening experience just how, you know, most of America is not a big city on on the coast or Chicago, for example. And the approach to life, the things that matter, really, really different. And I, I do think that that has uh, shaped my perspective on a lot of issues. So it was, it was an invaluable year. And is this right? Did I listen to you on Thanksgiving Day on NPR? Yes, I believe I did two NPR interviews that morning uh, on Thanksgiving Day, although I had promised myself to take the break. But uh, that's one of my favorite shows to do because it reaches a lot of audiences and also uh, just, you know, all the hosts are so gracious and easy to talk to. So when I, I prioritize that show if I'm able to do it. Yeah, I was thinking about that because uh, I remember listening to you and I thought it was on Thanksgiving. And then I listened to you on C-SPAN last year and you did that on the 4th of July. So you uh, have quite the work ethic. (laughs) Well, you know what, Ian, I, a few years ago, 
you know, decided that my passion really moving forward after teaching law students for, you know, 15 years or so was broader civic public education, because, you know, law, as you know, from your experience, the law school classroom is a really unique environment. And I do think people, regardless of where they come from or how, what their cognitive capacities are, their undergraduate degree, they do come out smarter and more uh, sort of analytically thoughtful and able uh, to manage complex decision-making. And I don't see why, you know, that, that education needs to be, you know, kept in the law school classroom. So I've, so whenever I have an opportunity to sort of translate some of these concepts into regular language, I, I, I think it's a privilege to do so. So it's really, frankly, just mushroomed in the last few years in ways I hadn't expected. Um, but it demonstrates, I think there's a real need uh, in our society for people to, to grasp basic concepts of how our constitution functions, what's a law, how is that different from a, a judicial decision? I mean, only, you know, the Annenberg Center out of University of Pennsylvania has done a study for years and only a third of Americans can name the three branches of government, wow. judicial, executive, and legislative. And we've had so many constitutional questions breaking day after day. And if people don't know that kind of basic uh, information, which is not their fault, it's really hard to manage not only the facts and the implications, but the anxiety that comes from it. My view is if you've got knowledge that gives you agency. And I think that's a powerful thing. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, one of the things I talk about in my introduction to this podcast is it's easy to say laws are unconstitutional, but it's hard to understand why. Um, and it may seem dry at times, but if you really want to get to know how the Constitution works, it's, uh, you know, it takes hard work. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I also say, and maybe this is something you say, you know, the, I get asked all the time, is it constitutional? And really, the, the better question is, what's the consequence? Uh, the Constitution, as you know, is a piece of paper, like a contract, and it doesn't itself grow arms and legs and, and enforce the provisions of the constitution. So really the question comes down to sort of your logical common sense. If something there, there's a rule like the rule against, you know, driving over 35 miles per hour on a particular street and there's no ticket for the, for speeding, the rule itself can't slow you down. It's knowing there's a consequence for violating the rule, which makes the rule have meaning. And the constitution is exactly the same way. So I've become less interested, even though I've had years of scholarship and fancy law reviews, less interested, interested in the sort of theory in, in uh, on how the constitution should be interpreted to how is it actually functioning today. And we've just seen so much of it, frankly, not enforced. And then it just becomes not usable, not just for this generation or our society today, but for future generations under different presidents. And that's why I think this conversation is, is an apolitical one. It's, it's not about Republicans Absolutely. versus Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think um, lawyers, you develop a sense of neutrality and I think you um, appreciate free speech when you go to law school. I, I wish more people took that approach on social media because right now it's like you're either a good guy or a bad guy and, and they don't appreciate the nuances um, with these types of arguments, right? Right. And, and you know, my next book is actually, I, I don't know if you were going to mention, I've written two books sort of for regular people. The first, How to Read the Constitution and Why, with both with Harper, Harper Collins. The second, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, has everything at your fingertips, Harper Collins. And the third one is tentatively titled Common Sense, 
a lawyer's guide to decision making, because as you indicate, um, you know, pretty much any hard decision in your regular life has pros and cons. It's complicated. It's nuanced. You can't get everything you want all the time. And that sort of uh, gray nuanced thinking, I think, needs to be brought to politics because the black and white thinking is really problematic. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, great. Well, I'd like to talk to you about um, three big topics going on right now. One is the presidential pardon power. Second would be the electoral college. And the third is this recent Supreme Court decision striking down New York Governor Cuomo's uh, restrictions on places of worship. So let's start with the presidential pardon power. What is the source of this power and what is the purpose of this power? So the source sits in actual Article 2 of the Constitution. So Article 2 defines the president's powers. There are three major articles, Article 1, 2, and 3. And it's really a job description for the federal government. Article 1 is Congress. Article 2 is the president. Article 3 are federal courts. So Article 2 says that the president shall have the power to grant pardons and reprieves uh, of, for federal crimes, except in the cases, case of impeachment. And it, you know, the pardon power goes back really to Greek and Roman times. And it certainly uh, was uh, a feature of the monarchy in England that the framers of the constitution wanted to evade by creating a democratic republic in America. Um, but the notion is really one of um, sort of kindness and uh, sort of acting in the public interest and giving, you know, the, the, the president would have the ability if he, if he were or she were to think that a particular person who's been charged or convicted of a crime needed some kind of different justice, that it, it's about mercy. Um, and it's also about, uh, as the executive being a single person, the notion that sometimes you know, we saw this with, for example, Gerald Ford pardoning President Nixon. Sometimes a pardon is necessary to calm down civil unrest, to sort of create a, a clean slate and move forward. And the framers thought, you know, having that power, because the executive power is really the police power. So prosecutors, police officers, that's executive power, taking a law somewhere else and enforcing it. And, and if the president's in charge of basically federal law enforcement, the idea is he should be able to say, listen, this particular use of law enforcement is one that I just think I, we need to take a pass on. So that's the theory behind it. And um, but like much of the Constitution, you know, it, it really, um, you know, it's been held up by norms and standards of basic how presidents do things. And we're seeing a lot of that sort of those boundaries pushed with not just the Trump administration, but with presidents before him using the pardon power in ways that some think uh, wasn't how it was envisioned to be used. So one thing I don't understand is these preemptive pardons. I always thought you had to be convicted of something first to get pardoned. But uh, when I listen to the news, there's talk about, you know, um, the president possibly pardoning people for crimes they haven't been uh, convicted or even charged of. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate that you ask this because there's so much misinformation, I think, about the Constitution. And, you, you know, you're a lawyer, so you understand this. But, you know, there's not much in the pardon power in the Constitution. As I said, shall have the, have the power. The scope of that power, when you can use that power, how you can use that power, if you, if you need to actually have a crime that's been charged or someone who's convicted of a crime, none of that is spelled out in the Constitution itself. And so that's, these, this, this is 
like a lot of the Constitution. These gray areas go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court resolves them. When it comes to the pardon power, you know, not in many cases have gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, and that's because the only person generally that could challenge the use of the pardon power is someone who was pardoned and then was was charged anyway. And they would go into court and say, listen, I shouldn't be charged because I I got a pardon. And then the court would then decide the scope of the pardon power. And that just doesn't happen. Usually pardons just are set in stone and people move on and no one really challenges them. So historically, I think there is some evidence that suggests as you, as what, which is your instinct, which is that pardoning means you actually have a crime that's either charged or charged and convicted. That is in an indictment or an information that says Joe Schmendrick, you know, violated this criminal statute. But President Ford, as I mentioned, he pardoned President Nixon for all crimes committed potentially within a certain time period. So there was no indictment of, of, of Richard Nixon. There was no identification of particular crimes. And that issue never went to the Supreme Court. So that's that's a precedent, basically, that's been set without the Supreme Court coming in and saying whether that's constitutional or not. But that's a new tool in the presidential toolbox just because basically Gerald Ford did it for, for whatever reason. I mean, good or bad, that's kind of beside the point. Um, but if whatever you know, a president can get away with, that becomes the new standard, the new normal. And so after that, I think it's just been routine, the assumption that you can say, I'll pardon you know, people for crimes that haven't been identified. Now, I do think that it's, and I don't know if this is in a Supreme Court decision, I have to sort of follow up on the research, but it's pretty well established that you can't pardon for a prospective crime. So Donald Trump couldn't say, so, you know, and I'm just pulling an example. Again, Joe Schmendrick in my administration is hereby pardoned for any crimes he might commit in the rest of his, during the rest of his life. It has to be retrospective. There has to have been at least a time period that already occurred. You couldn't pardon for future crimes, but it's pretty well established. You don't actually need to even identify the crimes. It's a big umbrella that covers federal crimes within the scope of the pardon. And so that it doesn't apply to state convictions? Correct. And that's very clear under the, the, the that's one of the few places where the, the constitution is quite clear. It's crimes against the United States, which means federal crimes, crimes that Congress has identified as crimes. That's what we mean by crimes against the United States. So if New York state, for example, passed a statute declaring certain behavior a state crime, like murder, uh, that would not fall within the scope of the pardon power because that would be a crime against the state of New York, not a crime against the United States. Can the president pardon himself? Well, again, you know, I like that question. The question <laughs> really is, if he does it, can he get away with it? If he can get away with it, the answer to the question is yes. Um, now, so, so, and I don't see how it would ever be challenged, how it could ever get before court. So we do rely a lot in our constitutional system just on people coloring inside the lines, people just saying, you know, I don't want to trash this. I don't want to bulldoze through the, this historical boundary, so I'm not going to do it. One thing, you know, love it or, or not like or hate it, Donald Trump just bulldozes through this stuff. Um, I think the better argument is that the answer is no. And there was actually one decision under the Office of Legal Counsel done um, years ago where 
you know, ju- lawyers of the Justice Department took that position that the president could not constitutionally, or at least if it were to theoretically go to the court, the Supreme Court would say it would be un- should say it was unconstitutional for a number of reasons. One is that it says grant the word grant shall have the power to grant a pardon. And if you look at sort of contemporaneous dictionaries um, from 1788, when the constitution was ratified, grant meant you're giving something to someone else. It's not giving it to yourself. Also, there's just kind of this basic sort of uh, backdrop of the notion that you can't be prosecutor, judge and jury in your own case, because then that's not even really meaningful that that gives you too much power concentrated in one place. Um, And, you know, I would, um, you know, I think my view is also in this moment, we know from the Justice Department's internal guidelines, this is not a law, this is not in the Constitution, but just as a matter of practice and policy, they won't prosecute a sitting president. So if you can't prosecute a sitting president while they're in office, and a president could pardon himself when he's out, he or she is out of office, that is a license to commit crimes in the White House with no consequences. And that, to me, just seems antithetical to a country that follows the rule of law and and sort of adheres, at least in theory, to the mantra that no one is above the law. That would make the president above the law. And so I just don't think that can be right. Yeah, I agree. And the framers, they were worried about a dictatorship. And one of the things that bothers me is over the years, um, I feel like the presidential powers have have grown too rapidly. I mean, um, with executive orders, um, with the the war power that was supposed to be for Congress to declare war, uh, the president was supposed to be sort of reactionary, or if there's an imminent threat, you know, you can take uh, military action. But that's grown tremendously over the years, um, and so uh, would you agree that kind of the executive branch is kind of grown bigger than than the framers intended? Well, you know, I think that's that's a pretty well-established position amongst legal scholars that, you know, over the years, the belt and suspenders of the executive branch has gotten bigger and bigger, and you identify a number of bases um, on how that's happened. I mean, executive orders are basically lawmaking by the president. That's not in the Constitution. Actually, the lawmaking power goes to goes to Congress, not the president, but presidents have done it from day one since George Washington. So here's another example of you just use it, you know, you use it and then it becomes your power. Um, you mentioned the war powers. I think that's an excellent example where clearly, it's very clear in the constitution that Congress was was the, the branch that has the power to declare war. Uh, and now presidents enter into war all the time without a declaration from Congress. But, you know, I think Another common sense way of thinking about this is, um, you know, if you've got, say you're in a job and you have a certain job description and a new person comes in the office who's very an eager beaver and wants to expand her scope of influence and all of a sudden starts taking over your work, um, you know, that that's a tricky position to be in professionally. But if you want to preserve your prerogative, you have to push back. You might have to go to your boss. Or you might have to sit the person down and say, listen, you know, that's kind of on my plate. Can we, can we talk about that? The Congress has basically sat back um, and we've seen it in astonishing ways under Trump um, with impeachment, for example, sat back and said, sure, you can have my power. No problem. Right. No problem. So when I say that with impeachment, you know, people talk a lot about abuse of power. 
which was the first article of impeachment that Donald Trump was impeached for. But in my mind, it's the second one that's more important, which is obstruction of Congress, where essentially it was it was a slam dunk. There was no debate that the president basically said any request for information from Congress, I'm going to ignore, whether it's documents or whether it's a, a witness and the even witnesses that don't even work in the government anymore. He directed them not to testify. So who loses there? It's the American people, because the way we find out what's happening in the White House is by Congress doing investigations. But if Congress is saying, listen, we're going to let you not actually comply with our request for information, that shuts down that investigative power of Congress. And so there again, we saw we saw the Congress say, no problem. Take all my power. We'll give it to you. You can now keep keep this wrongdoing under wraps. Uh, we have no. We're we're all allowing you to not to not uh, give us any information that keeps the the public in the dark. Even though we represent the public, um, we have a we have an obligation to to serve the public, not ourselves. But our political standing and our political futures are too important. Personally, we're not going to push back on you. Go ahead, do it. Uh, and that's that's what we've seen not just with Donald Trump, but historically with Congress saying, "Okay, you can take away my constitutional power." Interesting. We'll see how this plays out. It's going to be a fascinating couple months here. Um, so what is the Electoral College? What is its purpose? And why not just have the president elected by popular vote? So the Electoral College is, you know, one of the, I think, wonderful things about all of the stress we've been under with this election is the fact that we're having a conversation about our electoral system, which unfortunately is quite complicated and complex. So the Electoral College is not a college. It's not a meaning traditionally, it's not a place of higher learning. It's actually a process um, where we have representatives that actually cast our votes for president. And it turns out today is December 8th. Um, you know, six days from now, December 14th is when these individuals that we actually voted for when we went in, you know, to vote on December 3rd or before that, if we did it by mail or early voting, you didn't actually vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You voted for a slate of electors or representatives who then in six days will vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, that's called the Electoral College. A number of reasons behind it. Um, and it's, it's why we have a representative government across the board in that, you know, we don't, our members of Congress actually vote on legislation. We don't say, oh, should we have a law banning X? And then we all go to the polls and vote. And the framers did, you know, prior to the constitution, there was an early constitution called the Articles of Confederation, which was, you basically count up all the votes. Um, there wasn't a strong presidency. There were other changes, things that were different. But essentially, the idea is that sometimes populism, um, people can sort of get whipped up in ideas that maybe aren't, the, you know, aren't really in the long run good for society, good for them. Maybe they're based on false information. So we kind of need a buffer. We need an in-between set of people that will represent us and kind of be the, the grown-ups in the room. And that's why we have members of the Senate and we have members of the House of Representatives, for example. And that was also one of the reasons for the Electoral College. It was also uh, because back then, people were really more loyal to their states than to a federal government. People were really worried about having another king in the form of a federal government. And so the Electoral College was designed to even out the states. So the less populated or smaller states could have as much of a say in the presidency as the larger states. And then there's unfortunately, um, you know, a compromise 
uh, element that is rooted in in slavery and in you know enslaved human beings and primarily in the South and the United States um, and the concern that if you had a popular vote uh, and you used you counted human beings that you know the, the slave states would have a disproportionate um, you know uh, role in choosing a, a president. So for a lot of reasons we have, and of course that resulted in the, a compromise in the original Constitution that treated. Um, enslaved human beings as not full human beings, but three-fifths of human beings. But that, that's, a, that's all to say, you know, many people believe the Electoral College, the origins of it just don't apply anymore. Um, but it's in the Constitution, and changing the Constitution is really hard. Um, and by design, the framers wanted it to last for a long time, didn't want it to shift with the wind, so it's probably here to stay. That doesn't mean it can't be changed to make it more reflective of the popular vote. Um, one, what most people don't understand is the slate is in all but two states, winner takes all. So if, you know, Joe Biden won Pennsylvania by approximately 82,000 votes, he gets all of the electors for Pennsylvania. Even though Donald Trump won some of the popular vote, uh, he, Joe Biden, it's winner takes all. And that's the case across the country. And that's why in four times in American history, when we've had close elections, we've seen the popular vote not line up with the electoral colleges because every it's a winner-take-all system. The way to change that is to go to your state legislatures and say, listen, we want you to direct the, the, the electors to cast their votes in a way that's more proportionate with the popular vote. Can the state's numbers fluctuate with the uh, population like every 10 years with the census? Does it change? Right. So you get the same number of electors that you get two senators and then whatever the number of the members of Congress that you have for your state, those are the numbers of electors. So everybody gets two for for their Senate, except for the District of Columbia, of course, it does not have Senate representation, but every state gets two senators. And then however number of members of the House of Representatives they have by under a statute from, I think, the 1940s, the total maximum number is 435 in the Congress and the House of Representatives. Many people, including myself, think that number should go up. It's not in the constitution, it's set by statute, but basically that's the pie. And under the census, that pie is sliced up based on population. So, so certain the number states of members cap out. Well, certain states could get more or fewer members of the House of Representatives based on the census every ten years, and then that would change the number of electors they have in the Electoral College. Okay, but does I mean does states like California and New York are well? I guess not New York. I think California has the most um, Electoral College votes, right? Yes, because they have the most, um, they have the greatest population and therefore the greatest numbers of members of the House of Representatives. Can that number still go up or are they capped at a certain amount? Well, they're capped at a certain amount by virtue of that statute I mentioned. So the Constitution doesn't say there should be 100 or 200 or 500 House members. But Congress passed a law in the first half of the 20th century that said, we're going to arbitrarily put that at 435. And that it's that's so it's capped by virtue of that cap. You that's the map. You have to slice up that four or five four hundred and thirty five members within the, the various states. Got Some it. people think you could you could raise that to a thousand, um, given that the population, of course, has multiplied since since the 1940s or whenever that statute was passed. I mean, I'm, I'm just picking the number a thousand. But there's a good argument to be made that we need more members of the House of Representatives because we have a much bigger population now. Uh, and the more populous states, uh, it's not really reflective of, of um, the numbers. 
So could the states go rogue? Um, despite what the people voted for, could they, um, the state electors kind of pick their own president? Now, that's a great question, because here we are on December 8th, we're having this conversation. And that's, you know, we've heard probably in the news how the president has reportedly been running around calling uh, legislatures from the state saying, you know, ignore the popular vote and uh, pass a law giving me all the electors. We've also seen, I think, you know, so the last I saw there were 50 lawsuits, 49 of which the president's campaign has lost. And some of those have also gone into courts and said, give me all the electors. Um, there's a statute, again, called the Electoral Count Act that says that if by today, December 8th, after the election, a state doesn't it's not clear what the electors are supposed to do based on the popular vote that the electors can change the law. Because remember, as I said earlier, the state decides, tells the electors how to vote. So most states, it's winner takes all. The law of the state says all the electors go to whoever got the, the most of the votes. Um, they could change that law and say it should go proportionate. If whoever got 60% gets 60% of the electors or 40% could get 40% of the electors. Um, some, the Trump campaign have read that statute of saying, as saying you could go in and just ignore the popular vote altogether. I think if that were to happen, there would be, that question would go to, go to the courts and ultimately go to the United States Supreme Court. But it doesn't say anywhere, Ian, in the Constitution that the president, that the electors have to be tied to the popular vote. I mean, these are all, believe it or not, it's kind of amazing. The right to vote itself isn't even in the original Constitution. There's so much of our of our system that we assume is this bedrock rights-based system that is really squishy uh, and really vague. And it requires people with integrity, frankly, to uphold it, even if they can get away with doing something else. One thing I hope you can clear up for me, it, this is driving me crazy when I hear on the news, uh, the allegations of fraud. Now, fraud is an intentional act, right? Yes. So, they say in the same sentence, you know, there's all this fraud out here, but then they talk about, you know, ballots not being signed or ballots uh, not being postmarked timely or smudges on the postmark. That doesn't seem like fraud to me. That seems like, you know, good faith errors and whether or not you want to throw somebody's vote out on a technicality, you know, I'll leave that up to people to decide. But when they use the word fraud, it, that, that again, that doesn't seem like fraud to me. There's no intent to deceive there. Where am I going wrong? You're absolutely right. Um, I did a piece for the Atlantic, I think it was last week, about this kind of litigation. I mean, there's no evidence of fraud anywhere. I mean, even Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has said that. And you're right. Fraud means duping someone and pretending you're a voter when you're not, basically, and being an imposter. Um, and it's kind of hard to pull off. You have to have fake ID. You know, you have to hope that the actual person didn't show up. Um, that is the real voter. You have to and if you want to really change an election, you've got to get hundreds of other voters to commit intentionally try to to to, you know, fraudulently vote. And every state has anti-fraud voter fraud laws and the federal government, the federal, the Constitution under the Congress, it put, can put you in jail for five years. Yep. So it's just there's no incentive to actually commit fraud. Um and you're right, it's error. And what we're seeing with this litigation, why it's a 49 to, to one type, you know, losses over, over wins is using for the first time, I think, really in American history that I can tell in this in this major way, 
um, taking these concepts and trying to literally cancel properly cast votes based on technicalities. Usually this litigation comes up, state passes a new law about voting and voters or voter rights groups sue to make to, to undo the law because they want people to have access to the ballot. This is unprecedented to come in and say, listen, cancel the vote completely. I mean, in Pennsylvania, the argument's been made that literally all 6.9 million votes should just be thrown out completely because of minor technical errors that didn't actually make any impact. Um, it's, you know, we have, as you, as you know, having gone through law school, um, there is a policing mechanism for filing stuff in court that's garbage. It's called, in the federal level, Rule 11 sanctions. And I wish more of that were used because legally these claims are baloney. It's very, very damaging um, because American people don't understand that. And there's this impression somehow that the election wasn't well done. And, you know, 750,000 um, people turned out to make this election work. These are hardworking, regular Americans like you and me, and they deserve our thanks and respect, not figure pointing. Yeah. And the attorney general who was appointed by President Trump, uh, Attorney General Barr, there was just an article said saying that he, you know, has found no evidence of widespread fraud that would, um, you know, overturn the election. So, and uh, these court cases you're citing, most of these judges are uh, conservative judges, right? Well, I'm not sure of most. Certainly, some of them are. It, it, it doesn't goes across the political spectrum, and that you know, the difference between courts and politics is courts are bound by rules. I mean, they can't they can't pull rabbits out of hats and they've got rules of evidence. They have rules of civil procedure. They're they're bound by what the law says. Um, and yeah, across the board. Um, but even conservative judges are using rhetoric in their decisions dismissing these cases. Um, that is quite astonishing. Basically, basically calling out the Trump campaign and Republicans for, you know, sort of a, the, you know, an almost vulgar attempt to undermine basic democracy and the, and the rights of regular people to choose their own government. That is the right to vote. Yeah. It's really sad. And, you know, um, president Trump had a lot of good ideas. You know, there's a reason he got over 70 million votes, um, you know, standing up for American workers, standing up to China, um, things like that. And it's just a shame that it's taken a, a turn this way and, um, I really hope we can move forward as a country and heal next year. Can't get much yeah, worse than 2020, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah. And I just think we've moved. I mean, traditionally, the battleground has been around policy. Okay. So we have a set of facts. This is what let's look at, looks like it's happening to the climate. Um, do you do something about it? Do you not? What do you do about it? What do you not do about it? Here's our pot of money. How much should go to social services versus military? Those are called policy Debates, And that's usually where Democrats and Republicans fall down, you know, or that where the divide is. But with with this administration, it's about facts themselves. Do we value human life? Um, is science real? Um, are the numbers of dead Americans made up? Um, I mean, this is we're so far afield of what's really good, not just for ourselves, but for, as you mentioned, I'm a mom, I have four kids. And it's really important to me 
um, to do whatever I can to preserve this precious, precious thing we have called American democracy, because a lot of people on the planet don't enjoy it. And it's fragile. And it's been hanging on by a thread. And so whether I mean, I know people are very dug in if they support Donald Trump, and, that, and that's fine. And I agree with you, there's back in 2016, good reason to vote for him. I understand that. But at this moment, this was a this continues to be a vote for democracy itself. Uh, and then we can get back to the business of debating Republican versus Democrats, because certainly both both parties have good ideas when it comes to policy. I mean, I, I think those are robust, healthy debates. But, you know, whether it matters that thousands of, you know, a couple, two, three thousand people are dying every day in what um, from a disease that could pre- where, pre- you know, prevention is is not that hard. You just stick a mask on your face like that, that. That is, to me, la-la land, you know, in, it, in its most gruesome form. I, I want to get out of this, this distorted universe and go back to reality, frankly. <laughs> well said. All right. Let's talk about this recent Supreme Court decision. Um, just a few months ago, the Supreme Court upheld Governor Newsom's restriction on religious gatherings. Um, now they're striking down... Governor Cuomo in New York, his restriction on religious gatherings. What happened in the last few months? We have a new justice on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. That's really, that's basically what happened. Um, And I think what we're going to see is, you know, the First Amendment is another part of the Constitution that's super squishy. Um, It has a bunch of provisions in it, but it basically protects religious liberty and it protects free speech and it protects free association. Um, you know, among other things. And essentially what happened was um, in the pandemic early on, the states states generally deal with public health issues and government, ha- federal government has the power, but Trump decided not to use it, which is fine. Uh, you know, that's the president's prerogative, left it to the states. The states, you know, made issued a bunch of orders, some stay at home, some mask wearing. They had different sort of ways of sort of slicing and dicing the various places where people go. And there were out of, I think it was California and Nevada, maybe there were lawsuits that made it way to the Supreme Court by religious organizations that said, listen, you know, we're not being able to worship. You're discriminating against on the, under our First Amendment rights. And there's a case um, called Smith that was authored, the opinion was authored by Justice Scalia, where the court held years ago, you know, if and you mentioned this earlier when you're talking about fraud, that essentially, you know, if you're kind of if you're just sort of in the mix because you're a religious institution, there's no First Amendment violation. You have to say you have to show that the government singled you out because they don't like your religion. I mean, that's kind of a more intent requirement, which is why those lawsuits failed. Uh, I think with Justice Amy Coney Barrett and a solid six three majority on the a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, we're going to see a shift towards essentially treating uh, religious organizations with kid gloves under the First Amendment and saying, you know, any impact, if you call yourself a religious organization, we're going to protect you. And that's basically what happened. And what's astonishing about it when it came out of New York is that Cuomo had withdrawn the order. Um, It was no longer in place. And normally we call that moot. Uh, And courts will generally, um, with some exceptions, not get involved in deciding disputes that are stale. And given that the religious organizations were no longer bound by an order from Cuomo, um, the idea is if whatever the court does isn't going to make their lives any better. So come back to me later if Cuomo comes back with a new order. But this conservative court with Amy Coney Barrett said, you know, we're going to do a shot across the bow and tell you how we will rule if you come back, which is very rare. Uh, And I think demonstrates a real shift towards a 
um, emerging of church and state. We hear about the separation of church and state. I think we're going to see more, you know, uh, sort of a Christian bent in, in from, and I say Christian because I, I, I wonder if, if these kinds of cases were, were pushed by, you know, um, some, you know, other religions, I just don't know. It seems like that's, that's really when we're talking about religion in this country, given the history and the origins of American uh, sort of Puritanism and Christianity, that that's really what we're talking about. Do you think this decision will um, help other plaintiffs in, in other areas of the COVID-19 restrictions, uh, such as out here in California, what's driving a lot of people crazy, a lot of small businesses, is they've spent you know over $100,000, some of these businesses last year, um, setting up outdoor dining, and now Governor Newsom and, and other governmental officials have shut down even outdoor dining out here. Do you think that this this recent Supreme Court decision will help those plaintiffs um, challenge those types of restrictions? No, because they're not religious organizations. I don't think that. Uh, I mean, I do think, you know, Justice Alito made a, I think, uh, I mean, I've written about it, um, controversial speech to the Conservative Federalist Society a couple weeks ago, where, you know, he took issue with states imposing these kinds of restrictions, period. Um, so in the case that basically gives the states the ability to impose restrictions um, that, that affect your liberties is an old case. And he indicated, you know, that he'd be willing to, to sort of revisit or tweak that. So that might affect regular people. But I mean, listen, we all buckle our seatbelts when we get in cars. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't do that that restricts our liberty. It restricts our ability to go flying through the front windshield of our cars if we want to, right? Um, you can get a ticket. You can be penalized. We live We live with that. Um, not being able to sort of go, drive as fast as you want in your brand new car, that restricts your liberty. Um, we deal with speed limits. We deal with stop signs. We deal with red lights. We have restrictions on liberty every single day. And why do we tolerate them? Because it, 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 means that we don't have, we don't live in total chaos. It minimizes unnecessary human suffering and death. And there is nothing different about wearing a mask. It's like buckling up your seatbelt and it's probably temporary. And, you know, my response to people who don't want to, you know, don't want to, and I understand, I mean, I have tremendous compassion. Um, and, you know, obviously p- people I know and friends in my lives in my life that have, have really suffered by virtue of these COVID related restrictions, but if we all wore masks we'd be through this a lot faster and the economy uh, would, would not require, or the, I should say the, these kind of limitations by virtue of trying to minimize mass suffering and death. Um, but people just can't seem to, a lot of people be willing to make that tiny, tiny sacrifice, not just to save lives, but also so that we can all get back to having a lovely dinner and a sidewalk in California in a, in a cafe. Yeah, no, I mean, putting on a seatbelt, wearing a mask, those are, uh, less intrusive restrictions when you come in and shut down a business and take away someone's right to make a living uh, to me that's very intrusive and the fact of the matter is these restrictions are hurting um, working class people uh, poor people they're not hurting the super rich you know people like me I can zoom I you know the 401k is doing good and so those types of restrictions I think are, are very intrusive when you shut down somebody's way to make a living. I, think- I agree. I'm not disagreeing. And my point is that, you know, 
we th- those would be minimized if people would take basic precautions. I totally agree. That's yeah, what wearing I wearing mean. the mask. Uh, yeah, especially. I mean, I, it, by not wearing a mask, you're you're pushing states to make these more extreme decisions, and I've never been in the position of having to make those decisions, so I can't weighing the pros and the cons. I I don't know the epidemiology, the statistics, the other stuff, and I agree it's they're more draconian. I just don't know what I would do in that moment. I do know that I wear a mask every time I walk outside of my house because I want to be part of the solution to get all those people back to work. Um, and, you know, if, if we stop the spread of the virus, there's no reason to close any restaurants. I mean, um, that, that, so to me, that that's the low hanging fruit. And I, I can't comprehend why we're still having these debates about, about freedoms and liberties. It's just a misunderstanding of how our government works and how the constitution functions. Yeah, and I think um, those plaintiffs challenging the outdoor dining restrictions, they're going to have a, another hurdle, and, and that is the standard of review. When you're dealing with uh, a business, there's a lesser standard of review than when you're dealing with somebody's First Amendment. Um, exactly. Right? Yeah. It's a it's- rational basis, what we call. So the way the Constitution basically works is if the government makes a, does something to restrict you, if you're in a special class, if you're you know, if it's based, if you're claiming, uh, if you're a person of color, or if you're if you're a religious organization, if you're within the classes that are especially the pre- the the constitution singles out as wanting to make sure government doesn't bully you, then the government has to do more to justify the restriction. If you're just a regular taxpayer, uh, it's really hard to to come in and have a court second guess how a government a state is dealing with a pandemic. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I could probably talk to you all day about constitutional <laughs> law and nerd out on history. I love it. Um, but I know, you're, <laughs> I know you're very busy. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for being on my podcast. And uh, I wish you the best. Happy holidays. And I think we'll have a better year next year than this year. I do too. And I, and I just want to encourage your listeners to follow me at Kim Whaley on Twitter and on Instagram uh, and pick up my books. They're great little holiday gifts for civic education. Uh, and um, and I, again, I wish also you and your family and your listeners health, health and safety in the, in the coming months. Thanks for having me on, on the show. Thank you. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, All information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers.
all liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.